From ESPN, you're listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. In the early 2000s, the most popular women's basketball team in America was not a pro squad, but Coach Gino Ariema's University of Connecticut Huskies. Built around the dominant backcourt of Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, the team won four titles in five years. After college, the next step was obvious, turn pro. But the WNBA came with some built-in limitations, namely a hard salary cap. So Bird and Taurasi did what a vast majority of WNBA players do, they signed up to play a second season overseas. It was a decision that would bring the two women opportunities and complications that exceeded anything they could have imagined. A quick warning, this episode contains mature language and graphic descriptions of violence. And now, here's producer Keith Romer with The Spy Who Signed Me. at the line. It's UConn undefeated. Connecticut, quite simply, is the most talented offensive team perhaps in the history of women's college basketball. The difference between UConn and everybody else is that we have Diana and you don't. Still a chance for the Huskies! Even in college, there was always something that separated Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi from everybody else. Bird with her blazing quickness and near perfect decision making. Selfless, but when her team needs her to make shots, yes, she can step up. Tarasi with her swagger and ability to score from anywhere at any time. And now Tarasi from the outside. Wow. Holy smokes. These were players that WNBA GMs built their dreams around. With the first pick of the 2002 WNBA draft, the Seattle Storm select Sue Bird from the University of Connecticut. select Diana Taurasi from the University of Connecticut. My name is Sue Bird. And I guess I'm the um, second part of the attack team. Uh, my name is Diana Taurasi. At UConn, Sue and Diana had gotten used to being treated like what they were two of the top athletes in the world. We chartered everywhere, we stayed at the best hotels. We had the best gear, the latest gear. And then, all right, my next stop is the pro game. It's only gonna get better, right? It's only gonna get better. Sue? I think she's trying to say it doesn't get better. After the initial excitement around the WNBA's first few seasons in the late 90s, attendance had started a long, steady decline. The basketball was still great, but the financial pressure had a way of translating directly to the players. Well, you know, we don't make money, right? Like, there was always that vibe to it. $45,000? Like, that's what I'm going to make? That's what I'm going to make after, you know, four years of playing at the most prestigious basketball college? That's what I'm going to make? I mean, the janitors are going to make more than me. The guy who, you know, takes the floor out and puts it back, he's going to be making more than me. So... Sue and Diana looked for other ways to capitalize on their talents. Um, an agent came to me and was just like, hey, would you be interested in this club in Moscow? And I was like, oh my God, Russia? Like what? But the offer the Russian team was making was for a lot more than what Sue made playing in the States. I think I was in like the 200,000 like range. So yeah, I mean, for, for four or five months. Do the math, you know? It's like, it's, it's obviously worth it. It's my coach spoke zero English. I had a translator next to me the entire time. I think I get it. 
a lot of times I was just in my apartment, like my, you know, with nothing to do, you know, like on my AOL instant messenger, like, hey, you guys up? After one season there, Sue was done with Russia. I was like, I've had enough. This is it. But then her team in Moscow, Dynamo, made an offer not just to Sue, but to Diana as well. Come back to Russia and next year they could play together. You know, there is some security knowing, all right, Sue will be there. How hard can it be? It's basketball. Like, okay, there's snow. I just spent four years in Connecticut. It's snow. No big deal. It was the worst experience ever of playing basketball in my life. Dinamo's facilities were old. The style of play didn't make sense to her. She didn't speak Russian. Plus... I'd never had a, a, a thing with a coach before. For as much as Coach Rima and I used to fight, the coach we had there, I hated. And the guy equally hated me. So it was a disaster. His name was Anus, so. Well, it's like Inus or something like that. It, it was Anus. It was Anus. And well, we called we him Anus. Sure but... We called him Anus every single day. You are a terrible player. Pick and roll at the top of the key. Somehow when we uh, <laughs> when we imitate him, he's Italian, but he's not. He's actually a Latvian. When the season ended, I said, I will never in my life play here ever again. But there was one very wealthy businessman in Russia who was determined to change her mind. Shabtai von Kalmanovich is a co-owner of the Spartak women's basketball team. There was like whispers of this guy Shabtai and Spartak. Born in Lithuania in 1947, Kalmanovich emigrated to Israel. You really didn't know what was true or what was, you know, false. Before being unmasked as a spy in 1987 and sent to jail. And we heard stories, right? But five years later, the multinational citizen and speaker of nine languages was released and arrived in Moscow. It was just word of mouth. Everything was word of mouth. Next thing we know, they're like, Shabtai would like to meet with you two. And I'm like, whoa, like, who is this guy? I don't know what to expect. I've never met this guy before. He wants to bring us in and have a sit down, what, powwow? We get in a random car. We drive into the center of Moscow, where his office is. Just, you know, communist building. Big old ugly thing from the outside. Walking up these big old, just marble slab stairs. And then, you know, they open these double doors. And the minute you walk into his office, you're just like, this is just a weird place already. <laughs> like, we're talking like, yeah, like, walruses, penises there, all kinds of Torahs everywhere. So we sat down. There he is, the man, the legend, Shaftai. He was short. He was probably, I think he's shorter than I am. He was an interesting looking character. And he's got like a, uh like a Humpty Dumpty type body type. He was dressed to impress. Classic suit, always a white shirt. You knew everything he had was a lot of money. This man looked like put together. And then there was the hair. Um, I mean, it's hard to see past the mullet. I'm not gonna lie. It's incredible this mullet that he had. The mullet is curly. He, it's just amazing how he got away with this mullet. I think the first thing I said is, I won't play in this country ever again. <laughs> he was like, you haven't seen Russia. You don't know Russia the way I can show you Russia. Before long, Shabtai turned the conversation to just how a deal for Sue and Diana might work. In Europe, teams can only have two American players on the court at one time. But Shabtai had found a way around that rule. 
get his American players European passports. Kind of, he was the pioneer with the passports, and uh, apparently he gave a player, an American player, a passport of a person who was dead. <laughs> so someone's walking around with a dead person's passport. Because Diana's dad was Italian, she already had an Italian passport. So D had the Italian passport. I remember for me, the first thing he said was, I heard you're Jewish. And I was like, well, I'm like, my dad's Jewish, you know? And he was like, okay, I think I can get you an Israeli passport. He picks up the phone, dials some numbers. It's on speakerphone. Him and some guy are speaking Hebrew. I have no idea. Like, we have no idea what they're saying. And he's like, okay, gets off the phone. He's like, okay, we're going to make this work. So we'll get you an Israeli passport. D already Italian, and you both will play for my club next year. Shabtai wrote out on a piece of paper the rough outlines of a deal. It was literally a very general contract of I, Diana Taurasi. What did the contract say? No, I don't know. And Sue and Diana signed on. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're good. All right. So now what you're going to do is you're going to get in the car and tell me what kind of food you like. Depending on bonuses, Sue and Diana were set to make between 400000 and a million dollars each to play half the year for Kalmanovich's team, Spartak Moscow Region. And then I remember we were sitting at this dinner like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> like, then I was like, well, now I can put up with Russia. Shabtai Kalmanovich had been in love with basketball for a long time. You know, when he was a boy in Lithuanian, it's sports number one. In the late 90s, Shabtai had partnered with former Soviet star Arvidas Sabonis to finance a Lithuanian team that went on to win its first ever European championship. He understands all the tactics, all the techniques. He understands everything. Then, in the year 2002, he was brought in as a kind of consultant, fixer, general manager for the women's club in the Russian mining city of Yekaterinburg. Anna Arkhipova was the point guard on both the Russian national team and the club in Yekaterinburg. When he comes in our team like manager and we doesn't lose no one game, we win everything. And it's only because he comes, it's for sure. Kalmanovich wasn't much of a player himself. Was he any good? He? No. <laughs> no, no, no. But he tried. <laughs> Still, he was willing to do whatever it took to impress his new point guard. When it was end of season, he proposed me to be his wife. <laughs> For me, it was very, very strange. Kalmanovich was 25 years older than Anna. And she lived with her boyfriend of 10 years. But Kalmanovich was a charmer. I feel myself like princess. Like everything for me. Everything. The couple moved back to Moscow. And after they married in 2005, they both swore off basketball. Anna would retire and Shabtai would go back to just being a businessman. But in one month... Uh, he decided to be manager of Spartak Moscow region, you know. So he changed his mind. In Shabtai's first year with Spartak, the team qualified for Europe's highest league, the EuroLeague. And that is when he went shopping for his new pair of stars, Bird and Tarasi. At first, Sue and Diana's motivations for coming back to Russia were very simple. The only reason you go there is for money. That is the only reason you leave your country to go to a different country to play basketball. But Sue and Diana quickly discovered 
that the perks of playing for Shabtai didn't end at their salaries. Everything literally was first class. We're staying in the best hotels. We go to Paris. We're in, like, the bomb hotel in Paris. He goes, okay, you, you two live here in this mini mansion. I mean, it's huge. A pool, a sauna. And we were like, we'll take it. And this was the beauty about Shabtai. The minute you said anything, it was literally taken care of the next day. I don't know, we were somewhere, all of a sudden there's like knocks at the doors. Everyone got like this huge crate of strawberries that like were fresh strawberries from like, I don't even know where. The Slovenian countryside. And we're just like, all right. (laughs) Shabtai spoiled his stars. He basically was just like, here's my credit card, just go shopping. Get whatever you want. Get whatever you want. And we were like, very tentative at first. Well, I was. (laughs) So, you know, automatically like, okay, can we spend $500? Can we spend... A thousand. And you know, you get nervous. You have this adrenaline where you're like, should I get this Louis Vuitton bag that's $3,000, which I would never buy? Yes, you should. I will. And I'll get two of them. One for me and one for Jessica Tarasi. (laughs) We get in the car and I mean, we have what? Like 25, 30 bags. I feel like we robbed a bank. When Spartak won, it was easy to find Shabtai after games, bragging to journalists about his team. And, journalist Jeff Taylor says, once Bird and Tarasi arrived, Spartak won a lot. It was almost like an immediate start of, of domination. We had Sue who was in her prime, best point guard in the world. Sue Bird, and that jump shooting has been on the money for Spartak. On top of that, Shabtai had also recruited one of the WNBA's greatest scorers, Tina Thompson. Tina Thompson lights it up for three. And I was okay. Tarazi goes right past the Padova on the baseline. You know, you're talking about three of the greatest players of all time. And then we had probably the top three Russian national team players. They just cut through the competition. Again and again, Tarazi Subird always come up with the big plays for this team. I mean, we were really, really good. In 2007, that first year with Tarazi and Bird and Thompson, Spartak won the European title. With Bird and Tarazi, they were unbeatable. They really had no rivals. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. (laughs) I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. After playing for Spartak, it was hard for Sue and Diana to adjust to playing for their American teams again. You get back to WNBA and you're just like lugging all your shit around, getting on a 
terrible American airline flights at 4.45 a.m. Staying in hotels that were not first class. You know, that air conditioner that's really loud, but all it does is really just make the, the room, like, sweatier. Kate Fagan is a journalist and a former college basketball player herself. She saw firsthand how all these little annoyances could start to add up. You're taking layovers, you're flying coach, you're staying in hotels that don't have simply room service that you can maybe get a bite to eat at a late hour. It just makes the grind of the season and the wear and tear on their bodies all the more daunting. The league had rules that prohibited charter flights and required younger players to double up in hotel rooms on the road. The amount of emotional toll that has been placed on WNBA players and the amount of pressure to just accept whatever comes to them because how can you ask for more? Shouldn't you just be lucky to play women's basketball? I mean, these are pressures that have been on them for two decades now. To Fagan, that reality was what made the stories she was hearing about Shabtai so fascinating. It's one thing to go overseas and get paid $80,000. That's amazing and awesome. But then when I was like, no, like we're talking close to a million, right? My reaction was, holy shit, because they're making life-changing money. And I never thought that I, I would see that in women's basketball. Sue and Diana's lives split neatly into two. In the summer, they would play in the WNBA and earn the maximum salary of around $100,000. Once that season ended, they would get ready for Russia. I was just like, this is what I do. WNBA ends, I get my seven days to hang out with my family, pack all my shit up, get on that Aeroflot, straight to Moscow. I'm good. Waiting for them in Moscow? Shabtai, a patron unlike any they could have found in the U.S. We were kind of in awe of him. He has this like mystique to him and he kind of, he feeds it and he, he presents it. Shabtai would tell them stories about working with Michael Jackson and Liza Minnelli, about how he was best friends with Giorgio Armani. Shabtai was connected. At the end of one season, Spartak played the Russian League final on the road in Yekaterinburg. ECAT, the players called it. There's like this one flight that leaves ECAT to go to Moscow. Let's let's say it's at 8 o'clock. And there was no way we were going to make it. The game was at 7. And the next thing you know, it's like the morning of the game, maybe right after shoot around, they're like, all right, guys, you're going to be able to make your flights tomorrow morning. And we're like, what? How? Shaptai called Aeroflot. He called the airline. And he had the flight move back two hours. A commercial flight. He had a commercial flight move back two hours. It's like you calling Delta and be like, uh, you know what? We need this uh, flight uh, to LaGuardia to leave at yeah. 11 tonight. OK, thanks. We'll talk to you later. What? <laughs> what? We were like, I mean, okay, I'm great. <laughs> like, what? As for why Shabtai could just call up Aeroflot and have them change their schedule? Nobody knows. That's the thing. Nobody knows. Sometimes, Shabtai would give them glimpses into who he was and who he had been. One day I was at his office, and literally for, like, hours, he would just tell me these stories. These, like, crazy epic, like, of his travels. There was his time in Israel in the 70s and 80s. He gets very close to Golda Meir, who was the prime minister back then in Israel. He has close ties with Menachem Begin, who is the head of the opposition. Journalist Omri Ossenheim says that was how Shabtai worked. He knew how to get very close to high-ranked officials, and he knew how to get very close to his taxi driver. He just has this very unique and very helpful ability to get connected to people 
uh, all sort of people. He was in Africa for something. While there, Shabtai worked his magic in two countries. First, he won a series of construction contracts in the South African puppet state of Bofuthotswana. Then, he was granted control of the diamond trade in Sierra Leone. When he was back in Israel, Shabtai turned his attention to a very different business, reporting on his powerful Israeli connections to Moscow. He was a Russian spy for the KGB. In 1987, Kalmanovich was arrested in London for passing millions of dollars worth of false checks. He was allowed to return to Israel to await trial. But while he was there, he was charged by an Israeli court with spying. Within months, he was convicted of espionage and sentenced to nine years in prison. It was in the, on the headlines of every newspaper. It was a great surprise to find out, uh, first of all, that there is a Russian spy in Israel. And secondly, that this Russian spy is the famous Shabtai Kalmanovich. I mean, life is about second chances, right? Shabtai wanted to be more than a convicted spy. He wanted to be more than whatever else people suggest he is. He wanted to be more than that. Which, maybe, is where basketball came in. Whatever else people might have said about Shabtai, no one ever doubted his love for the game. Least of all, the point guard he had made his wife, Anna Arkhipova. He was a sick about basketball. He was crazy about basketball. In the big games, he could be an animal. He would be all up in the ref's face. You know, we had coaches, but he's the one who made the subs. Like, if he didn't like what was going on, Sue, back in the game. And you're like, well, you're not the coach. Everything was very dramatic. A foul call, he would, you know, his hands would go in the air, the mullet would be flying. Time to time, I think that he will have heart attack, you know, during the game. He wanted this team to be the Barcelona of women's basketball, the Chelsea of women's basketball. And I think Sue and I were just two of those little pieces that he was trying to integrate into that. In 2008, Shabtai added a third piece, the previous year's WNBA MVP, Lauren Jackson. With Jackson and Bird and Tarasi, Spartak wasn't just the best pro team in Europe. It was the best of all time. Up ahead it goes to Jackson, the great pass from Sue Bird, and Jackson knocks it down. In 2008, they won the EuroLeague for a second time. Then a third time in 2009. It's the Spartak Moscow region fans and the team that's all smiles right now as they go to the changing rooms. They have beaten their nemesis this season by nine points. Why did you hire Lauren Jackson? I love her. <laughs> as a player? As a player. As a player, as a daughter. She calls me Papa. I call her my Australian daughter. He took care of us like we were his daughters. Which is funny because my mom would call him Papa too. <laughs> you know, I'd be on the phone with her. She goes, how's Papa doing? You just always knew he was there the way a father would be. I don't know how many times he would call. Tomorrow you will be coming to dinner with me and the family, the boys and, and Anna. He came at it from a sense of family. You know, he really created and cultivated this whole environment where you felt connected. And I don't have that with a lot of people, but with him I had it from the day I met him. Loved his family, loved women's basketball, loved us, viewed us as performers and entertainers and wanted to share our talents with the world. And then also he was, you know, I was going to say providing, but he was allowing us to like have a career and make tons of money doing it. And, and with that, you're able to take that home and have a life. 
However well Shabtai might have treated Sue and Diana, somewhere in the back of their minds, there was always some uncertainty about just who he really was. You know, every time we'd go to a to an opposing city to, to play a team, there's always a black SUV with a guy holding a suitcase waiting for him. I mean, every single time. Any city we went to. My name is uh, Kirill Belininov. I did investigative reporting for many years, covering Russian organized crime, corruption, uh, you know, all the wonderful things in Russia. I don't know what's in that suitcase. Who knows? There might be shrimp in there. I don't know. There might be $2 million in euros. I don't know. Well, uh, I mean, the Kolmanovich story is murky. Many things are very, very unclear uh, about his life. We always saw one side of Shabtai. We know there's another side. It was clear that he's wealthy. Nobody really knew where he's getting his money from. This was a guy that wore many hats, and we knew he wore a lot of hats. Some of those hats Kalmanovich had been wearing since he returned to Russia in 1993. Basically, if you're a businessman in Russia, successful businessman in the 90s, you have to break the law in every single day, in every single move of your life. Does it make you criminal? I don't know. That's how entire country lived for uh, more than a decade. When Kalmanovich had gotten started in Moscow, the country was in chaos. The Soviet Union had fallen at the end of 91. Russian capitalism was just two years old. And so were all the new laws that were supposed to contain that capitalism. In Moscow, he was immediately involved in some business ventures with uh, Iosif Kabzon, whom uh, many called Russian version of Frank Sinatra, not only because of his music fame, but also because of his many connections with the organized crime and Russian mafia. In a country where the police and the courts didn't always do a whole lot to protect property rights, Kalmanovich made a killing in construction and real estate. You don't have to be a criminal to be a successful businessman in Russia in the 90s, but you have to have friends in uh, who are criminals. As long as you're not killing people on the street or blowing up their cars, um, you're not really a criminal in, in, in the Russian sense in the 90s. And as Shabtai told one journalist, yes, he had friends who were in the mafia, he took pictures with them, but that didn't mean he was in the mob himself. November 2nd, 2009, 5 p.m. We had practice that morning, and it was Janelle McCarvel's birthday. So it was a Beyonce concert that night. So the day before, we're like, Shabtai, can we get to the concert? You know, and he's like, no problem. He sets it all up. Sue wasn't in Russia yet. She was rehabbing in the States and planning to come over in January. Diana and the rest of the Spartak players finished up practice, then met up at Shabtai's office in Moscow. And there was just this weird feeling. Like, you just know when, there's, when something's wrong. The doors to Shabtai's office, which were always open, were closed that day. They're like, just wait in the waiting room. And I was like, this is strange, you know. Because even if he wasn't there, we'd always go in his office. After a while, one of the Russian players went over to the drivers to try to figure out what was going on. And she comes over and she goes, Shaftai has just been killed. He was driving to the Kremlin and, you know, was at a stop sign and someone just came up and 
I don't know, I don't know how many rounds of ammunition they put in there, but they said he just dead on, on sight, really. And we're just, I mean, it was just silent. No one said a word. It felt like we were just sitting there for days. No one knew what to say. No one knew what to ask. There was just no, there was, there was no questions. There was no sense of like, what do we do next? It was just like, this just really happened. Eventually, Diana's driver took her home. We get in the car and we're driving back to, back to the house. And we literally drive by the scene. And there, there you know, this was what, an hour and a half afterwards, maybe. Everything was still intact. The Mercedes that was there for, you know, for our whole careers that we drove in a million times. We were in that car. I, I can't tell you how many times we were in that car. Gunshots everywhere. Just completely shot up. Police, ambulance. And there he was, hunched over, dead. You know, where his, his belly is on kind of where the footrest is. When I saw that, I was, I was in shock. I've never seen someone dead. No one close to me has ever died. I mean, that was the first time where it was like that person's dead. Diana called Sue back in the States and told her what had happened. She's just like, he's dead. And I'm like, who? And she's like, they killed him. They killed Shabtai. I did a very poor thing in that later that night, maybe the next day, I Googled. There's some pretty, um, I don't know, there's some not great pictures on there. There are pictures of him, you know, his, his white shirts. He always wore white shirts, just all blood, um, him laying on the ground, him slumped in the car. You know, it showed the car window where the bullet holes were. And that's when it really hit me, like, he got murdered. Like, this was like a contract killing because the bullet holes in the window are, are very, I mean, I don't know how many there were, 30, 40, and they're all like concentrated in this one area. Like, this person knew what they were doing. It was covered by the all the media outlets in Russia. All the journalists enjoyed basically going into very colorful Shaptai Kalmanovich past. Including Kalmanovich's connections to a recently murdered mobster known as Yapanchik, the little Japanese. Vyacheslav Ivankov, also known as Yaponchik, is the most famous and most influential leader of Russian organized crime. One of the theories about Shabtai's murder was that he was killed over a shopping center that he had controlled with the backing of Yaponchik. According to some police sources and some sources in organized crime circles, uh, both Kalmanovich and Ivankov were involved in a dispute about this Drogomilovsky market in Moscow. Um, and they got into conflict with some uh, organized crime groups from Northern Caucasus uh, who were trying to take over control of this market. According to that theory, all the connections that had served Kalmanovich so well for so long had either stopped working for him or actively turned against him. I was told that um, basically he was a victim of a major gangster war 
With Shabtai killed and nothing more than rumors for explanations, Spartak's players were at a loss for what they were supposed to do next. So they came to the gym. So we had a long hallway and it was just a trail of people slumped over, sitting on the ground crying. I've never experienced that before. I just have never been around that type of despair, really. I mean, I was right there with them. I mean, I couldn't, you know. I didn't know how to console them. I mean, I didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to say. Entire days passed like this. (laughs) There's just so many fucked up moments. Like, So they did a huge funeral at the arena. Government officials, pop stars, crime bosses, all came to pay their respects. And I go over to one of my Russian teammates and I go, you know, who could have done this? And she goes, the person who killed him is probably here now. And then she just moved on to the next conversation. That that just like was bizarre to me. But that's, Russia is a different world. I just remember thinking, like, do I even go over there? Is there going to be a team? Like, does this exist without him, you know, on, on every level? I was like, well, this doesn't make sense for me to stay here. That doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense for them either, maybe. We had problem with money in club. We had this meeting at the gym with his wife, and she pretty much couldn't guarantee anything. And uh, I come to girls and tell, you know what? I will try to find the money. But if somebody wants to broke contract now, I'm agree. She pretty much said, you guys are free to go somewhere else. And Diana stand up in this room. She stand up and tell, you know what? I will play until end of season for free. And I was crying. There was just something, like, I couldn't leave. I just couldn't leave. I couldn't leave. I, I had this responsibility to him and his family. Um, I just couldn't leave. I think a lot of people, a lot of women who play overseas, like, these are just places they go. And, and they stop there, and they play, and they get paid, and they leave, and they move on to the next. It was so much more to us than that. So much more. I don't know why, but uh, when Shabtai died, I made everything for win this championship. That team was just so fucking edgy. Like there was anger about us when we played. And usually when you play angry, things don't work out well. But for whatever reason, this sadness and this anger and this just unknown feeling of what can we do to make this better, that was our only solution. They just went out and just started started cutting people down. Didn't matter if they were at home or away. They were still too talented, too confident, too experienced to, to fall to any of these teams. Spartak dominated the EuroLeague that year. When the playoffs rolled around, they hadn't lost a single game. They never wanted two teams from the same country to be in the final. They had to play each other in the semis. So in the semifinals, Spartak met their biggest rival, the team where Shabtai had gotten his start in women's basketball and met his wife, Yekaterinburg. 
there's no team that he wanted to beat more. We could lose every game that year, but if we beat them, he was the happiest man on earth. That ECAT team had Candace Parker, Cappy Pondexter, Deanna Nolan. Three or four of the starters from the, the Russian national team. They were stacked. We didn't like them, they didn't like us. It was a nasty rivalry. I just remember that whole day, I couldn't nap. Sitting in that hotel room, I couldn't nap, couldn't sleep the night before. I don't know, this was the first time where it felt like it was shifting towards them. Like they were kind of, okay, now, now they're the ones that are gonna be the big dogs, whereas we had been the big dogs for so long. And in that game, in the first half, like that's what it felt like. It felt like, oh crap, like they got our number. At halftime, the invincible Spartak trailed by three. I remember being really quiet at halftime. You know, usually there's this like rally together, let's go mentality. There wasn't quite that. Diana Taurasi was 27 years old, arguably the greatest women's basketball player in history at the absolute peak of her powers. There is a cockiness, a swag, a confidence that just oozes who she is, how she plays. She's, she's one way, it's all or nothing with her. In the second half of that game, Tarasi went to a place few players ever do. It's mindless. All those little moments of learning, of shooting, of playing basketball, whether it was in, in the front yard, whether it was doing drill work at practice with coaches, whether it was just playing two on two, you know, on a Saturday. It's just one of those days where everything kind of comes together and you're just out there. You're just out there. You're just out there. Just out there. Diana put the team on her back. She had 37 points, 12 rebounds, six assists. Like this was the one game where I had to do it. Like I just had to do it. Spartak wasn't done though. If there's one thing that Shabtai always cared about more than anything was EuroLeague. He wanted to be champions of Europe. In the locker room before the championship game against Spain's Rose Casares, head coach Pokey Chapman didn't even bother with X's and O's. They used to make these like baseball card-ish type things of, of our team. And she handed one out to every player and was just like, I know I don't have to say anything to you guys. It was Shabtai's baseball card. We had black uniforms for the first time. And we had all decided to wear these like black high socks. And so everybody stuck their picture of Shabtai in their sock. Итак, еще раз, Спартак, Сьюберт, Диана Таурази, Марина Карпунина, Ирина Осипова и Сильвия Фаулс. When you take the basketball court, it's a very subtle thing. You just know when your team and you're just ready to win. Like everyone's committed to that no matter what happens. That day in Spain, the game was over before it ever started. They already knew they lost. I already knew too. Турази! Три! Восемьдесят один семьдесят! За две минуты одну секунду до конца основного времени. Spartak won the European title, 87-80. Sparta ведет одиннадцать очков. When that game ended, it was, I don't know, like this, this huge dose of like, joy and like excitement it's like this oh we did it but very quickly 
there was this other huge dose of like, you know, the reality that was still hanging over us all. It was a sad, it was a sad day. Cause it was the end of an era. And, you know, Chef Ty was, wasn't there. He wasn't there to experience it. White t-shirts were given to all the players to commemorate their fourth straight championship. In red letters across the front, this is for Shabtai. I remember looking up into the stands and seeing Shabtai's wife Anya, seeing um, his daughter Liat, and just how like, same for them, like you could see them like, kind of like a smile on their face, but tears streaming down. I not was happy, you know, it was just, uh, I made what I wish, you know, that's all. It was target, you know, by yourself, like inside, you know, for him, we made to win, for him, and we made it. Today, Shabtai's widow Anna runs Spartak. The club is now more of a training center for promising young Russian players than a European powerhouse. Sue played one more season for Spartak. Diana immediately moved on to a club in Turkey. They joined up in Russia again in 2012 to play for Spartak's great rival, Yekaterinburg. The murder of Shabtai Kalmanovich remains unsolved. I always thought understanding Shabtai and Spartak and Sue and Diana's place in that team would help explain something about women's sports? He made everything bigger than life. And at the time, women's basketball needed someone to make it bigger than life. And that's what he did. I think about what I have in my life now from a financial standpoint. And it's like in large part due to Shabs. And it's like crazy to think about. It's just this one person who took interest in women's basketball. But what would my life be like without that? You know, like I could retire and be totally fine. <laughs> and not a lot of people can say that at 38. And it's because... This man provided, you know, myself, the rest of us, this opportunity. The way we treat female athletes here is disrespectful. I mean, it, it, we should be embarrassed that the best experience that Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird have had where they've felt most respected was by apparently an ex-KGB officer who was eventually shot dead outside of the Kremlin. He treated are female athletes with more respect than they've ever felt domestically. Like that, that's quite an interesting legacy to actually try to understand. If he were, you know, a, a mafia figure, like what would that mean to you as a player? I don't know. It's like if you presented me with facts that, you know, he was like out there murdering people and like doing that would be hard to to detach from. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it would be hard because he did mean so much to us in all these other ways. And we never saw anything like that. You know, never. I could only go from how he treated me. I could only go on the basis of how he helped my career. And that's all easy for me to say, right? Because he did nothing but help me. So would it be ignorant for me to be like, oh, I wouldn't change my perception of him at all? I don't know. I don't know if it would, to tell you the truth. The good person in me says, yeah, you know, of course it would. I should feel different. I don't know if I would, though. 
I really don't. This story was reported and produced by Keith Romer. This episode was mixed by 30 for 30's Mitra Kaboli. Production assistance by Vin D'Anton and Ivan Kuryev. Our fixer in Moscow was Charles Maines. Additional translation by Yael Ivan Orr. Archival research by Maria Olenava. Additional production support from Joel Shupak, Robert Frazier, Andrea Casino, Ivan Bing, and Lindsay Collins. Roger Jackson provided fact-checking. Special thanks to Steve Kostalis, Ivan Golanov, Alec Fokchin, Vladimir Ivanidzai, Svetlana Abrizomova, Sonia Petrovic, Maxim Glicken, Carol Stiff, Carol Collin, Anastasia Bagayava, Ryan Nantel, and Jenna Anthony. The series editors for 30 for 30 podcasts are me, Jody Avergan, and Aaron Leiden. The 30 for 30 podcast team also includes Andrew Mambo and Meredith Hodenot. Special thanks to 30 for 30's Kat Sankey, Jennifer Thorpe, Eve Wolf, and Riley Bloom for production support. Executive producers for 30 for 30 are Connor Shell, Rob King, and Libby Geist. Our development team is Adam Newhouse and Trevor Gill. The ESPN audio team includes Trog Keller, Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannisini, and Ryan Graner. Our theme music was composed by Rishikesh Hirway, who also makes the Song Exploder podcast. On our website, there's a transcript of this and all of our episodes and lots more. Check it out, 30for30podcast.com. My name is Jody Avergan. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.